1 Corinthians chapter 12. We will be looking at verse um, 8 and 9 tonight. I do have a question that is somewhat off topic, but it's going to be con uh, relevant to consider. I just uh, know this is the case. Um, yeah, verse 8 is where we will be. And verse 9, actually, verse 9, part A, maybe verse 9, part B as well. I, I doubt it. I doubt it. I have a question. Um, for the audience as well, you guys can email me if you want to, gbchayward at gmail.com. How many of you guys are aware of the, um, the war that's going on in Israel? Raise your hand if you are. All right. How many are you aware of what actually is going on as much as you possibly could be given all of the different uh, media narratives that are going on? How many of you? I mean, do you feel like you are being... Um, fairly informed. Okay? Okay. Some say no. Good. Good. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Um some of you say you are being fairly informed. Okay. So, um here's another question that I want to ask since you most of you like 90% of you say you heard about the attack on Israel. Um Here's the second one. It's going to be four. Why do you think you know about that attack? Why do, why do you think you, I'm not asking you to answer me. I want you to think about this. Why do you think you know? Why do you think that that information has been given to you so that you can think you know? I want you to think about it. This is not a game. Uh, this is not a game. So that's question number two. Uh, question number three is going to be, um, do you believe it could happen to you here in America? So 50% of you nod your head, yes. Okay. Okay. So most of you are, most of you are aware that Israel has been attacked. 50% of you believe that you are fairly well informed. About 25% of you say it could happen here if you, if you actually know what happened. Now here's the next question that I want to ask you. Are you ready for something like that to happen to you? This is not a game. I'm just asking you. Okay, I want you to think about it. All right, this is not for you to launch off into conspiracy theories. This is not for you to, be, uh, to bury your head in the sand and pretend that, you know, if I just stick my head in the sand, it'll go away. I'll just wake up one day and everything will be all cleared out. Um, it's for you to consider because I talked to our congregation a couple weeks ago after a Sunday and I said this year and next year is going to be hard. I already told you that. Um, so I just want you to think that through. If you were living life as Matthew 24 put it, eating and drinking and giving a marriage and going about your daily life in the, in the quasi sense of safety. And then all of a sudden you were overwhelmed by an assault on you. And you were totally surprised. Totally surprised. That's what I was asking. Could that happen here in America? Could it happen to you? Could it happen to us? And if it could, why? And if it did, would you be able to respond to it? And if you weren't able to respond to it, how come? Uh, that would be like a fifth question. How come you wouldn't be able to respond to an attack 
on your own soil, in your own world, when it happens everywhere in the world and has been happening since the beginning of time. Um, and, you know, why wouldn't you and I be ready for something like that? I'm, I'm doing a reverse now. And why would it happen and we would not be ready? See? Right. Also, I want to ask one more question. Do you think it's appropriate for me to be talking to you like this? Okay, so just, I don't know about all that. What I do believe is that we have been given a picture. Like I teach you about optics. Optics are given. We've been given a picture of something. And we can go, oh, that happened over there, but that wasn't for them. So you and I need to be aware of that, okay? So you'll be hearing things over the weeks and months to come. And the issue will be, did we learn from this? So now I want to talk about the gift of faith. We can pick up and how we can unpack um, the issue of what's going on in our country, what's going on in our world. Many of us are deeply involved in analysis and investigation of what's happening globally and all that. And I don't think the church should be ignorant of these things, even though it is. And, and the most vulnerable churches are American churches, quite frankly, um, because we are like Israel was. Israel thought for sure they were safe. They thought for sure. It would never happen to them, not with the kind of protection they had and not with the kind of military surveillance and, and uh, strategies and on guard that they had. They just knew that could not happen. In America, no, that's what they knew. I'm telling you, that's what they knew because that's what they were told. Like us, we are exactly like Israel. Um, so when the Apostle Paul lays out after dealing with the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, which we talked about, he gives us another gift that the Spirit of God pours out in verse 9 to another faith by the same Spirit and to another gifts in the plural of healing by the same spirit. That last one, gifts of healing by the same spirit. That's a longer study because of the construction there. I want to go back, and it should be in your outline as well, to the um, gift of faith. The way that I have outlined it in our um, outline is a faith that is to be what? Right. So I, I want to actually talk about the the meaning of faith over against the expression of faith and then faith as it shows up in many different categories in the scriptures. Um, and, and maybe that can help us start getting our hand around it. Obviously, you and I know on a sort of academic level at what we call in theology, the ascentia of faith, the ascent of faith, uh, to assent to something, to agree, the agreement of faith. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That does have to be unpacked itself, but as a general definition, what faith is, is a mechanism by which you and I have confidence in things for which we can bring no immediate evidence to the table. So I just want to put that out there because it's important to get it at that le level. Faith in its essentia form is a conviction, it is a persuasion, it's a confidence, 
uh, it's a reliance upon certain propositional terms. Does that make some sense? Right, it's important for you to get that. So like, you know, everybody will have an essentia to something, a kind of fidelity, that's our word, uh, fidel, a fidelity in something, a conviction about something. No, no one walks around faithless. No one, not in the general category of faith. Everybody has a kind of faith. You couldn't tolerate life if you didn't believe in certain consistent patterns of existence. If you didn't have certain um, expectations and hopes of things, you couldn't survive. Am I making some sense? It's important for you to get that just as a general principle. So like if you and I were talking to an atheist or an agnostic or someone who really hasn't worked through the fundamental meaning of faith, because peace these while it's a Greek term, did not originate in the New Testament. I talk to people about syntax and etymology and things of that nature all the time, particularly Christians. Bible words are words that have been taken from culture and put in a framework to elicit or adduce for us theological implications. So let's just say when the Bible says uh, in, in, in Galatians chapter uh, 3, the just shall live by... And it also says it in Romans 1.16, as well as, as it coming from the book of Habakkuk 2 verse 4, and the just shall live by his faith. And then again in Hebrews, it says it four times, uh, the just shall live by faith. That's not a concept that the Romans didn't know. It's not a concept that the pagans didn't know. So a lot of times with Bible verses, please know this, ver concepts in scripture are concepts that men and women have exercised all their lives because life fundamentally mandates for you and I believing in things before they appear. And the reason why is you and I are not omniscient. God is omniscient. Right. So now follow this, because I just want to drill down in the fundamental definition. And I want to talk to us about different categories of faith, because if we oversimplify the idea of faith, you're going to contradict yourself in the scriptures. This is what I've said before many times. If a theological term is used many different ways in scripture, then be careful on how you define it so that you don't fall into the fallacy of a mono-definitional term, a one-way definition, when a thing will be able to be applied in multiple different ways. Does that make some sense? Right, and I'll show you what I mean shortly. But when we talk about faith, you will have, uh, you will have individuals who will have faith in pagan gods. They will have faith in nature. They will have faith in chance, right? So humanity is always operating out of expectations of things working out based upon good luck charms and, and uh, you know, um, enchantments and, and spells and, and all kinds of things. Those are kinds of faith as well. So, but when we talk about the gift of faith here in the scriptures, that um, the apostle is speaking to the gift of faith, something given to us. I am, not, I am not persuaded that the meaning of the gift of faith here is the gift of faith uh, for salvation. I, I, I do know that salvation is a gift and that faith is a gift, Ephesians what? 2a, right? For by grace are you saved and that 
uh, for grace, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a what? Gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So I do know that. But I believe that what Paul is talking about here that we need to get a grip on is a a gift of faith given to men and women to express a confidence in something that God said would occur or should occur or could occur in that moment. And that gift of faith here in this context as the spirit of or the gift of wisdom or the gift of knowledge is not given to the unbeliever, it's given to the believer. So the gift of the spirit of wisdom or the word of wisdom is not given to the unbeliever, it's given to the believer. The word of knowledge is given to the believer. Is it possible that the believer also needs the gift of faith in order to express certain things in certain contexts in certain ways? All right, so you can work through that. I say yes immediately. I say yes immediately. That even though I am a child of God and I possess a sentia, in the claims of the person and work of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, which is the grounds of my salvation. I still need the gift of faith to function in certain categories of my life by which I glorify God. I can turn that around as we get ready to work on it. Not everything that comes into my life for which it may be a challenge or a calling to me, do I have an adequate faith to be able to embrace that challenge to do it? Or else, why am I praying for more faith? Remember what the apostles uh, prayed for in Luke 17? Lord, do what? Increase our faith. So what I'm getting ready to do is cut you off from the false notion that faith at the level of regeneration is what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about faith at the level of regeneration. He's talking about faith at the level of manifestation. So then we can kind of talk about there is a kind of faith that we have that does not require a manifestation for it to exist. So when we talk about uh, being saved, we are stating that we are believers. Is that true? That's Romans 10, verse 17. So follow with me, T. Uh, Romans 10, 17. I'm going to lay a foundation. Again, you guys can uh, you know, challenge it on Friday. We can unpack it. I'm just going to get inside your head with different biblical categories to help you understand why we would want to pray for the gift of faith. Okay? So when it says, um, um, so no, go back to verse 9. I'll, I'll make my way up there. But verse 9, notice what it says in Romans 10, verse 9. Um, that if you shall confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you can say that, right? That's an articulation. That's an expression. It does not necessarily mean you believe that. So you can, you can actually have an expression that doesn't correspond with the reality of your heart. Would you agree with that? Of course, I don't. So you guys have been exercising that before. Faith is not what you say. Right. But if you actually have faith, you should be able to articulate it. Right. Um, and so notice what the author says. Paul says that if you shall confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and shall do what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. This here is what we call the nexus of the statement of faith, Ascentia. This is what we declare to be the grounds of conviction between the believer and God himself. This is not something that um, is merely for public consumption. 
This is something that must be between you and your God. You have heard the gospel. You have heard justification by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And your heart has come to do what? Believe it. That's a dynamic going on in your soul, is it not? Right. And that internal uh, reality is a hidden reality to the world until you do something by way of a faith expression to show it. Would you agree with that? I'm going to say it again just to um, help you understand why you don't ever want to so associate faith as a root with faith as an expression so that if there's no expression, there's no faith. That would be wrong to do. Does that make sense? Right. So I was listening to Mr. MacArthur this morning defending um, children who die and, you know, stillborn or in abortions are very young prior to um, any kind of public confession of faith and how he argued, as we do here at Grace, that children that die before a stated development of their mentality by which they can be consciously aware of their rebellion against God, they automatically are saved on the grounds of the merits of Christ's atoning blood for them because providence didn't allow them to live long enough to go through a faith expression of life. Did that make some sense? That we can take a long time to understand the goodness of God around, therefore, why so many children die. Because if we were to invert that assumption that, you know, um, if a child doesn't express faith in Jesus at two years old, then that child dies and go to hell, which is some extreme positions in church history. We never have advocated that because that would assert salvation by works. It would. It would assert a salvation by works, meaning that um, there are many scenarios in which human beings have had faith in Christ for which no one else has had the privilege of knowing that they've had that faith in Christ, okay? Um, we would argue that the thief on the cross was that. We would argue that the scenario that happened with the thief on the cross was heaven being opened up to show us what otherwise would have never been known. Does that make some sense in that regard? And so then when we talk about the categories of of, of children, we are stating that there will be many occasions wherein children are perfectly seated in the presence of God, not based on what they do, but based on what Christ did for them. All right. That becomes a, a, a kind of category of faith that is unique. It's not, it's not something that can generalize across the board, meaning that when you and I become old enough where we can profess our faith, then God will demand that we do that under many circumstances, right? We can even go conversely like this, just as I'm thinking it through. There will be scenarios in which you don't confess your faith in Christ out of fear, out of trepidation. So I, I was teaching you this when we were dealing with this pandemic foolishness back a couple of years ago around um, the, the martyrs of the church in the early days of martyrdom, that Christians were constantly being faced with whether you pinch the salt and bow the knee to Caesar and call him curious or not. And that church history would render many Christians who succumbed to Pharaoh's tyranny, not Pharaoh's, but Caesar's tyranny. And they pinched the saw and they call Caesar Lord. And then 
two years later, three years later, four years later, when the injunction to put Christians in prison was removed, those people who had defected wanted to come back to the church. Why? Because they still believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the church had to wrestle with whether or not they would let them back into the church. Does that make some sense? Now, of course, they had to follow a protocol of acknowledging that it was a heinous, heinous act of defection to deny Jesus as Lord in the face of death. But what the church also had to do was to go. That was not the pardonable, unpardonable sin. Are you guys keeping up with me? Right, so I'm laying down some very nuanced terms because I want us to have a healthy, mature understanding of the diversity of the expression of faith, right? It's important for you to know that. This also, as I was tying it to the children, um, is a very essential doctrine if, in fact, you have had children that have died as stillborn, as stillborns or in abortions are in tragic, tragic events way before there could be any conscious understanding of their moral culpability and therefore confession before God. This is why I love actually being a pastor at the functional level because it requires having a broad understanding of certain faith claims when we reach those kind of areas or else you will be someone's miserable comforter telling them something that you cannot substantiate through the scriptures or cannot forbid. So it's important that we put that out there because I think that the gift of faith here is not for salvation, but for expression, for expression or for manifestation. And I'm hoping to develop that argument here in a moment. Let's see if we can start with a few verses to kind of build our idea around the idea of faith being expressed. Um, If we look at Acts chapter 14, in Acts chapter 14, an event occurred here that I think is worthy of consideration. Acts chapter 14, and this is a time where the Apostle Paul is dealing with an impotent man. And I want you to notice what it says here in verse 8. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never what? Powerful impediment. If we were to be sympathetic to this, this guy is walking around with a record that no one has been able to ever help him in a situation where he could have just utterly gave up on any kind of possibility that his scenario could be corrected. Would you agree with that? And and, and many of us could be sympathetic with it. You're born crippled. You've been living all your life crippled and you got all these people who are supporting you in your crippled state. You might even actually be living pretty good out of the sympathy and charity of human beings, right? But wouldn't the question be, does the cripple, does the lame, does the halt, does the blind, does the dumb and the withered hear the gospel? Do those people come under the auspices of the proclamation of the gospel? And can they in those broken states of non-expressed faith be believers in Christ? Of course they can. So it's important for you to to bring that into the equation because this is what's going to happen. Notice what the text says in verse 9. Acts chapter 4 verse 9. The same what? Heard Paul speak. Now, if anybody is going to be speaking 
when I'm in a condition like that and it's Paul, I'm happy for God's providence, aren't you? So this person has been hearing Paul speak. So what we already know has been settled in terms of the essentia of faith is that that man has heard the gospel, has he not? He's already heard the gospel. Now notice what it says. Who steadfastly beholding him, Paul, and you know Paul was definitely uh, governed by, full of, and directed by the Spirit of God on so many occasions. Who steadfastly beholding him and what? Perceiving that he had faith to be healed. Okay, here we go now. Is it possible that the Spirit of God granted that man in that moment who was already a believer, who has dealt with his brokenness all his life, but had come under the special providence of hearing the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ preaching about the glories and the claims and the crown rights of Jesus, have the Spirit of God operating in his soul at that moment? where his heart is being lifted up and great expectation that this Jesus can heal me. Is that possible? Right. Is it possible? So you guys remember a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to raise it with this person too. You do remember a couple of weeks ago, there was a woman who had an issue of blood and she was toiling all her life. And when she had heard that Jesus had passed by, she pressed through the crowd. Remember that? Was she operating by a faith that could believe that if she could just touch the hem of his garment, that she could be healed? Right. So what we are looking at here as we are talking about the spirit of God severely passing out gifts to his people, are there occasions where these gifts are going to be given to believers where they demonstrate a remarkable manifestation of faith in a particular object so that God can be glorified. Did that make some sense? And what I mean by a particular object, I mean in God at a situation where in that moment, their believing God would show up in a manifestation of the spirit of God. So remember what we're doing with the gifts of the spirit is we're talking about the manifestation of the spirit. So I want you to stay with me. That's what we're dealing with. So don't don't get caught up in the gifts as much as understanding. We're talking about a manifestation of the what? Spirit of God. And he will manifest himself in many ways authentically in the life of a believer. And in, in, and in some cases, among all kinds of unbelievers, in order that the world might know that the kingdom of God is present. Also, I, I, I'm laying this out in order for us to just think about the many different areas in which Scripture speaks about this. Here's an event that occurred. It's in the book of Numbers. You guys remember this. This is Numbers chapter um, uh, 13, uh, verse 30, Numbers 13, 30. Out of all the men going into the promised land to survey it, there were two who actually believed God. Who was that? Joshua and Caleb, right? And notice what the language says here. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses because you guys, you know, they were falling apart when they heard the bad report of the 10 others who were saying, we cannot take this land. The giants are too great. It's not possible, right? So they were hearing a, a report that was contradicting God's promises, weren't they? And all the children of Israel were coming full, uh, uh, full swoop under that sort of unbelief, spirit of unbelief. You and I know it. And here comes Caleb, 
who stilled the people before Moses and did what? Said, let us go up at once and possess it. For we are well able to what? Overcome it. Could it be that the spirit of God has endowed Caleb on this occasion to express faith in a situation in which the very rebellion and, and apostasy and retraction that the whole nation was about to engage in had to be mitigated by someone who was willing to believe God. And Caleb's a believer. And we could also argue that many of these people who were succumbing to the bad report were believers. Could you do that? You better. You, you better believe that because you and I live in a society today where a lot of believers don't believe God for a lot of things. Am I telling the truth? Situations come up where we should be believing God and we're just horribly not. And then one or two are showing the spirit of faith in a manifestation that breaks them away from the majority who are weak in faith. Aha, uh -huh. is it possible to be so weak in faith that there's no expression of faith manifested? Isn't that what Jesus said to the disciples on more than one occasion? He said, why is your faith so small? Oligo in the Greek, it, it, it's the idea of being so small that it can't be seen. He said it in Mark's gospel, where is your what? Faith. Now think about that. So he's talked about weak faith. He's talked about small faith. He talked about no faith. And yet these were men of faith, weren't they? So what are we talking about? We're talking about scenarios in which the idea of the spirit of God working in our life under certain circumstances will grant us a, le a level of faith to believe God through something that is so contradictory or so oppositional that we have to call it the gift of faith. All right. So if that if that proposition is potentially true, is it possible that even in your life? I just want you to I want you to think it through with me before we go on. Is it possible that there are times in your life that you're walking along in your fundamental essentia faith? Well, you're trusting Christ as Savior. But you are walking in a very weak state of carnality, even um, uh, barely, barely motivated to 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 um, even trust God, maybe not even reading your Bible now. I know that didn't happen to anybody in the room, but it just may be, a, you, you know, I, you, you're not praying. Um, you know, you definitely don't want to be challenged. Any carnal temptation, any carnal challenge come your way, you're easily pushed over. And yet on an occasion, something occurs where God stirs you to believe him. And no matter what the scenario is, you find yourself believing God. Now, you know that's not natural to your character or disposition. You know that. Would we not attribute that to the gift of faith? Of course we would. And at that point, what we're doing is we're saying, Lord, thank you for increasing or bestowing upon me a level of faith in order that I might express it in a situation where you need to be glorified. Does that make sense? Right. I'm just putting that out there because I really do believe that that was the case. Here's another way our account puts it. We're over in chapter 30. Um, chapter 30, verse 14. No, I'm sorry. Sorry. Chapter 14, verse six through eight, where God is going to comment on both Caleb and Joshua again as a model. Notice what it says in Joshua, the son of Nun and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land 
What did Joshua do? He rent his clothes. What? In protestation to the group think that was walking contrary to what God said that they were supposed to do. Is this an expression of faith? Renting his garments publicly was an expression of faith, was it not? Because he's going against the stated narrative, which is going against God's promises. Uh, and, does, and, 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 and I, might, I might also say this to you. Joshua is a very interesting character, and we're coming up on him because we're almost done with the uh, wilderness sojourn. There, there's nothing in the text here that would implicate Joshua as having any prodigious expression of faith. He sat in the back. He followed Moses without a doubt, but he was largely quiet, was he not? Largely quiet, which is also a beautiful gift, but he wasn't one that was expressing a kind of bodacious or broad sort of front-leading characteristic of faith. And the reason why I say that is because he did not want to, the, to be the next in control. He did not want to take the children of Israel into the promised land. He did not take on that presumption. What did God tell him to do? Be strong and be of good courage, right? Am I not with you, right? And so what is God doing? He is booing up Joshua's fundamental characteristic because now Joshua has to take off from his uh, protege, Moses, with these crazy rebellious people and bring them into the promised land. Does not Joshua need an addition to his faith? Of course he does, as we all do, as we, as we all do. And Joshua rent his clothes. Notice what it says in verse 7. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, the land which we passed through to search it is an exceedingly good one. So do you see how Joshua's narrative is different than the narrative of the 10? Notice what it says in verse 8. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land flowing with milk and honey. Can you see the gift of faith operating in his testimony? Very, very much so. Verse nine, only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us, fear them not. See, now Joshua is talking this way, but God's going to have to help him when he comes to the River Jordan, when it comes to bringing the people up into the promised land which tells me that this is not Joshua's natural disposition. He's been endowed with the Spirit of God to believe God in this moment, to believe God. This might be some comfort to some of you um, and, and maybe not to others. Look at verse 22. Look at verse 22, because there's a, a yet a commentary on this. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these 10 times and have not hearkened to my voice, these would be men who did not demonstrate faith. You agree with that? Verse 23. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. Verse 24. But my servant Caleb, because he hath another what? with him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land wherein he went and his seed shall possess it. Does God bless faith in that regard, right? He that comes unto God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I put those categories out there for you and I to be thinking about, all right, maybe I do trust Christ as savior, 
Maybe I do. But there may be occasions in my life where challenges come where I need an endowment of God's, God's grace. Or there may be an occasion where that will happen without me even asking it and it shows up in my life and I find myself demonstrating a level of faith that is even remarkable to me. If you should, you should give glory for it. You should acknowledge that that is merely a gift that's being employed because at any other given time, you and I could shrink back you and I can keep our mouth shut. You and I can find ourselves going with the multitude. You and I can find ourselves when we leave that space saying, Lord, why was I so much of a coward? Why was I so fearful? Why was I so committed to my own protection? Am I making some sense? All right. So it's very, very, very important that those qual uh, qualities are there. Um, and, and again, one of the reasons why I say that we want that want to understand faith in the objective sense. And that's what I call it. The objective sense, the subjective sense is me believing it in my heart. The objective sense is that it expresses itself at a time or manifests itself at a time by which God can be glorified. I thank God for that. Now I want to take you to James to um, once again exercise our senses around this briefly, James chapter 2. Um, I think I'll start at verse 18 and go through verse 20. James chapter 2. Now, you know James is dealing with this from a number of standpoints, but it's fundamentally faith as an expression, and it's important for us to think that through. Yea, a man may say, you have faith. Do you see it? And I have works. And James will say, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my what? Now, so what did James just do? He set this individual up on the first line, the third line, second line, rather, it will be, yeah, the second clause, show me thy faith without thy works. That's a setup, is it not? Right, because what is he asking for a demonstrative faith? He's not asking for an essentia faith. An essentia faith is a faith of what you believe in your heart on the grounds of what somebody else has done, which is invisible. It's not seen. I don't I, I can't show you what Christ did 2000 years ago. Am I making some sense? Not in the sense of taking you back there. I can't show you that. So I can't prove to you that I believe in my heart something that happened 2000 years ago. That's between me and God. It's called faith essentia. And that is critically important. That's critically important. But now if I have to now show my faith, that's faith demonstrated. That's faith manifested. This is what James is saying. Listen to what he says. If you can show me your faith without your works, I can show you my faith what? By my works. By my works. So what kind of faith is he doing? He's demonstrating a faith that is able to take hidden things and affirm the reality of those hidden things by express manifestations of trusting God in things visible. In things visible. That makes sense to me, and I think the challenge is great. Watch how he works this out. Verse 19. You believe that there is one God. That is faith essentia. That's a propositional faith claim, isn't it? We believe there's one God. You do well. The devil's also what? The devil's also what? They have faith. They have a kind of faith. It is a fundamental assent to the reality that God exists. I would also argue that the devils have much more a concrete uh, resolve and conviction of God's existence than even we do. 
Did that make some sense? Well, that's very, very important to know. Now, notice, and this is what I had stated to you guys before around the, cat, the purposes of signs. Signs are designed as a mechanism to lead us to what? To salvation. They are not ipso facto. They are not automatic, but they should. A sign should drive us to salvation. And salvation will show up as a process of what? That's, it's, it's, this is absolutely necessary. I am not sanctified unless I'm saved. And I am going to be saved when a sign has manifested itself, particularly in terms of the great sign you and I have talked about, the sign of the cross. Christ came as God's sign. Did you guys know that? That's Luke gospel chapter one. This child is a sign to all of Israel. For the rising up and the falling down of many in Israel, Jesus is a sign. Did you know also that believers are signs? I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs. Stay with me. So I'm using the term sign as a predication for salvation in that God is working through miraculous or supernatural outcomes to bring men and women to a place where they recognize they need a savior. This is why Messiah, when he came, he came doing miracles. He came doing signs and wonders. He came bringing the kingdom of God even before he died on the cross. And you know what he would say? If you don't believe me, believe me for my work's sake. So what I'm sharing with you as we work, work, walk through the, um, the uh, gifts of the spirit is for you and I to understand that what we would want to do is be in a place of our walk with God, that he could use us as signs. That would be a grounds and preface for people's salvation. Did y'all get that? Right. Why? Because the kingdom of God is spiritual. It's an unseen dimension. It's not comprehended with the physical eye, is it not? Right. So last week we were dealing with the word of wisdom, weren't we? And we were dealing with the word of faith, a word of uh, knowledge. When we looked at the accounts where the word of wisdom was employed, did the exercise of the word of wisdom being employed demonstrate a kind of sign? Can a word of wisdom be a sign? You better hurry up and say yes. When we were dealing with uh, the word of, of knowledge, where um, Elijah told Gehazi, did not my heart go with you when you went to Naaman and asked for all that money and gave it back? Was that not a sign? Right. Now, that sign should have led Gehazi to repentance, but he perished, didn't he? But it was still a sign, was it not? The, the uh, word of knowledge that Peter gave concerning Ananias and Sapphira, was that not a sign of the presence of the Spirit of God? Watch this. And Ananias and Sapphira did not repent, did they? They perished. But you know what the text goes on to say? And many feared the Lord and claved to the doctrine of the apostles. So what I'm getting at is when, when God is working in our life and his, and the Spirit's gifts are, are operating through us, they are designed to be insignias to people, either to bring them into salvation or to sanctify them. Everything the Spirit of God is doing is for our sanctification. Would you agree with that? So 2 Thessalonians 2.13, this is how I would bring this up to, uh, to work this out. <laughs> And then we'll go back to James. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, 
Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to what? He's chosen you and I to salvation. We didn't choose our salvation. God did. Now look at the mechanism through sanctification of the spirit. Do you see it? And belief of the what? So if the spirit of God is present doing things that are supernatural at the level of the gift categories that we're talking about, would they not be employed to bring men and women to an awareness of their need for Jesus Christ? All right. Very important. So then we would be asking the question, Lord, how might these gifts show up in our life? How might I be used by you, by the gifts of the spirit to um, to manifest your presence, to open a door for sinners to hear the gospel or even believers who are out of the way to be compelled by my walk with you and by you infusing me with any of your gifts? Are those good questions to ask? Here's the reason why. You and I are not saved to just walk around willy-nilly acting a fool or trying to acquire wealth or money or anything. We are here to be an impact in people's lives. And if it's merely a matter of submitting to the reality that the third person has to do the work, and I think he does, and he'll do it whenever he wants to, and I believe he wills, I want to be of a mindset that on any given day, he will work through me supernaturally to draw someone to Christ. Does that make some sense? All right. Think about your kids. Think about your grandkids. Think about a sanctified grandma, a sanctified grandpa, a sanctified uncle or aunt, right? Wouldn't you want to be that kind of person? See, I, you know, I know I have to always bring it down to something personal before we get it because we're so jacked up, right? But what... Wouldn't you want your kids to have occasions where I know that God was working through my mama because ain't no way in the world she'd have known that if it wasn't God working through her, right? I know God was working through my father because he just was relentless in his love towards me. Relentless. And they couldn't identify it until a conversion came, came about. And, and we as the parents really knowing that it was only God's grace that kept me in that kind of fixed persistence of loving on my children the way I did, because I was walking in all kind of ambivalence personally, but God was keeping me. But God was keeping me. It's really true, right? So I'm actually giving shout outs to the third person so that you and I don't make the mistake that the Corinthians did that somehow the gifts are to be snatched up for our own privileges and blessings. And particularly because, you know, where we are and where we're going in our society, you guys, we may need a major endowment of the Spirit of God to get through the hell that we're about to go through. We may need a major endowment of the Spirit of God to get through what we're going through. Um, take me back to James chapter 2. I want to close there, and then I'm, we'll come back and unpack um, uh, faith and healing more fully on Friday. There are many other verses. I just wanted to excite you around the fact that Jesus talked about faith among believers um, frequently, and he would admonish them for their faith not being developed enough in order for them to actually even comprehend things. Don't you need faith as well to comprehend things? Please, you do. You can have a weakness of faith and therefore not have access to deeper things of God. 
It's, it's, this is so important. This is why Jesus would say to the disciples, why are you so slow of heart and believing? Did, did you not understand what I meant by the bread? The leaven of the Pharisees and so forth and so on. So what he's talking about is how you and I, um, our faith is, is organic and it's dynamic. It's not static and fixed. It can grow and it can diminish. This is why we know what the sin curve is. I love this. This is an oscillating cycle on a uh, on an electrical uh, electronic scale, but I call this the sin curve. Do you know anything about the sin curve? Yeah, you do. You know, you know about it, right? And and we need grace to come up on that other side, don't we? Um, verse twenty. I want to work through two more, maybe two two more verses. But will you know, obey man, that faith without works is what? Right. Verse 21 was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, up upon the altar. Now, some might call what James did right there a cheap shot. I don't. I want to argue that Abraham had faith before Isaac even was brought into existence. Stay with me. I'm going to use this one to close because this is a beautiful example. So, you know, Abraham had faith before Isaac was brought into existence. Abraham had faith when God had called him and his wife out of Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham had faith when he went into Egypt and told his wife, hey, sis, that'll come back in a minute. Right? Hey, sis, did he have faith? But he didn't have expressed faith. He didn't have the gift of faith to overcome the odds that brought him into the fear that was ready to sell his wife down the river for his own protection. He was at that low ebb of the sin curve, wasn't he? That sin curve was low. And Sarah's was high, wasn't it? Now you're silent. See, if Sarah was low, she would have said, you crazy fool, you think I'm going to do this for you? Her faith was high when his was low. Did that make sense? She believed God. Was happy to get those manicures and those fine clothes from the king and air-conditioned room, looking out at Abraham over the palace while he down there smothering in the heat. Um, Abraham's faith went up and down. And then his faith was weak when his wife's faith was weak. They both have weak faith. And Sarah was tired of it. Here, just go get, go get... Go get, get, get Hagar. Maybe God meant for us to use this mechanistic process to have a son, right? We can twist the doctrine, can we not? Modify, right? Lean unto our own understanding, right? Oh, I got it. I got a revelation from the Lord. This is the way we're going to do it. We're still believers. We still have faith essentia. It's completely connected to God at the promises. But we are not believing God for the specific category of promises because they are beset by all kinds of trials grander than our capacity to reason through. Right. And then all of a sudden, uh, Sarah is with child. And her faith was fledgling when God told her next year, this time Isaac's coming. She laughed. Right. She laughed. And then Isaac comes and, and Abraham and Joyce Isaac for some 16 years and then God says okay time to go Abraham needed more faith don't you think to get up early in the morning and go up to the top of Mount Moriah every step of the way can you imagine 
him utterly depending upon God to do something else but take the one boy that he loved and he went through all that hell for. And God granted Abraham the expression of faith that gave us the paradigm of the father offering up the son. Does that make some sense? This is what I'm talking about. So the gift of faith expressing itself becomes a sign that draws men and women closer to the God that loves us in the grace and work of Jesus Christ. This is where the gospel becomes so powerful too. And of course, this is what we're getting at. If God gives us supernatural capacities to do something, it's in order to exalt the crown rights of Jesus Christ and draw men and women to him. It's important for you and I to know that. It's important for you and I to keep that uh, in our mind. And here's Paul, here's James' argument out. I'm going to stop here. Verse 22. James 22. Seest thou how that faith wrought with his works and by his works faith was made what? Manifest. Expressed manifest that word perfect is the idea of a seed going into the ground bearing fruit in the ground because it exists before it's seen and then it creates the stock and the bud and the flower and the full bloom it comes to full fruition in that sense you and i are called people of faith aren't we and i said it last friday and i'm going to say it again there's a day coming when our faith will be perfected too and we will be manifested the same way that Abraham was manifested. When Jesus comes, every believer will be manifested to be what we are apart from sight right now, sons and daughters of God. You do believe that. So this is the distinction, the categorical distinction that I am contemplating here around the idea of faith. We'll take up healing because what you're going to learn is that faith, healing, and miracles are going to be substratums of each other as we look at how miracles are designed to be a component of faith and also um, healing as well, components of faith as Christ employs them. Because remember, we're dealing with what we call the messianic gifts. And so Messiah was producing faith in people's hearts as he brought about signs, as he brought about wonders, as he brought about miracles, and they were all designed not to terminate in those people, but to terminate in him, right? That's what the gifts are all about. Okay, going to take a break and get into prayer, and then we'll take up our subjects on Friday.